0: Good morning. Uh, I have scripture for us in Esther four. It is not on the screens. I am going to invite you to read along with me in your ancient digital manuscript uh, or your actual Bible if you brought it. This is Esther four twelve. And they told Mordecai what was what Esther said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in this king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat and do not drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and I and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered to them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you welcome Stacy
1: Thank you for the opportunity to come and spend some time with you this morning. Um, it is so sweet to be with you and as As Julie and others were leading in worship this morning, I thought, ooh, this church worships. There is a heritage here. And somebody sitting in this section in particular, I heard you, and I heard just the way that you worshiped with a lot of power and might, and I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you for having me, Brad, and thank you, Fellowship West, for allowing me to be here. I always find that when it comes to teaching the word of God, if the people of God know a little bit about who stands before them, they're able to sink in and relax into what God has for them. And so I am Stacy Tafau, as Brad said. I am the beloved daughter of God who is learning to live into the deepest and truest identity that God has written for me. I am wife to Elijah Tafau, sitting there on the third row, and mom to Olivia and Isaiah, who will hate that I have put the spotlight on them. But I love to teach the word. And I am eternally captivated by the process of looking more and more and more like Jesus. I'm passionate, as Brad said, about the work of spiritual formation, of learning to do and say the things that Jesus himself did and said. And I want you to know that as a child, the book of Esther was my favorite book of the Bible. One of my other favorite non-canonical books that I would read would be like Nancy Drew series or anything written by... Judy Bloom, and whenever my mom, I'm one of nine, whenever my mom would take us to church, I would always manage to sneak in a book that was not the Bible, and I would insert it into my Bible, and then when the pastor said, turn with me, if you will, like back in the old school Southern Baptist days, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter one, I would, "Mm mm-hmm, and I would do the actions of turning in my Bible, but it really was a Nancy Drew mystery novel. And so when my mom busted me for that, and she does, like moms always know, right? So she would sit, like the oldest would sit in the front pew, and then she would sit behind us. When she busted me for that, I had the option of either just counting light fixtures or ceiling tiles, and in old Baptist churches, there are a lot of ceiling tiles and light fixtures, or actually reading the Bible. And so because Esther read as a story, I read Esther every single Sunday of my childhood. I just read and read and read. I want to start this morning with a quick recap for everyone. If there's anybody who's new or just the people of God oftentimes need to be reminded of where we've been and where we're going. So in week one, Brad unpacked the historical, and, um, the historical and literary context of Esther. He talked about all of the themes, including that broad, overarching theological theme that God is always present and working, even when he feels distant. Can I get an amen? Amen. Esther then was introduced in week two as the adopted daughter of Mordecai. We learned that the Jews in Susa were exiled and they had little power. And that as a successor to Vashti, Esther was handpicked by God to play a major role in fulfilling his covenant promises and saving his people, giving them the opportunity for their lives to be extended. And then in week three, last week, Brad taught through chapter three. We know that Haman's name meant magnificent And memorable, and that when Mordecai refused to honor him as such, the scripture tells us that Haman then flew into a rage, which plays into our text today. Verse 6 of chapter 3 says that having learned who Mordecai's people wore, that Haman scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for an opportunity to destroy not only Mordecai, but all of the people, all of the Jews throughout the entire 127 provinces. We learned about Haman and how he was an Amalekite and how he successfully obtained an order for the destruction of all the Jews. And then at the end of chapter three, we're left with that cliffhanger of verse 15 that says the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Next week, you're going to learn how Esther's story shows us the reality of God's upside-down kingdom and how in his kingdom, the strong and the proud are brought low, but the humble and the vulnerable are always exalted, but we are not there yet. So this week we're going to spend the bulk of our time in Esther chapter 4. People always discuss Esther as the book of, of the word that does not contain the name of God. And I would argue that that sometimes because we're meant to know who someone is by who their people are. This notion does not always compute for those of us who are in an individualistic culture, but it does when you're a part of a collectivistic culture. For example, my husband's family is from Samoa, and Samoa is a collectivistic or a communal culture. So for example, if we meet somebody who's Samoan, they're going to ask us, are you from American Samoa or are you from Western Samoa? And we'll say, well, we're from American Samoa. Then they're going to ask us what our family name is, and we'll say Tafau. And after they know our family name, then they're going to ask us the name of the village where we are from, and we're going to say we're from Utule. And then they're going to ask us, well, what is your mother's maiden name? And we will say Tuiteleleapanga, which is also very helpful when somebody at your credit card company asks for your mom's maiden name, because they just say, okay, we're just going to give it to you. But simply put, we know... And we are known by who our people are. I have a son, Isaiah, or Isaiah, Semisi Tafal, whose father is Elijah Semisi Tafal, whose father is Elise Semisi Tafal. And to be a Tafal in our family means you do the work of God in the house of God. You are a pastor. We are known by who our people are. And so in the exact same way, in this story, the people are known by who their people are. And if you'll permit me, we're going to do a very quick, deep dive into the genealogy of our characters because it matters not just to our story, but to the bigger story that God is writing through Esther's life. So when we get to Haman, we know that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac and that Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. And we know that it is Esau who despised his birthright and that his grandson was Amalek, who was the father of the Amalekites, who attacked the people of Israel from behind as they came through the Red Sea. We know that when Saul became king, he was under orders to destroy the Amalekites. And scripture says that even though he went to war with them, he left Agag, who was their king, alive. The prophet Samuel called him on it and that's where we get that famous passage. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than a sacrifice, and to heed is always better than the fat of rams. Saul's disobedience would ultimately cost him the throne. And if we fast forward 600 years, our protagonist, Haman, is also an Agagite. He is a descendant of Esau who had no use for God, and a descendant of the Amalekites who tried to stop the work of God. Got it? It will never end well for somebody like that. And incidentally, if we were to fast forward another 400 years, we would get to Herod the Great, the one who ordered the destruction of every Hebrew boy under the age of two years old. He is an Edomite or an Amalekite, a descendant of Esau. So we see and we know God from what is happening within the context of the story. And as twisted as Haman's story is, Mordecai's is straight and sure which proves the old adage that when people tell you who they are, you need to believe them the very first time. We know him as a Benjamite. He's a descendant of the same tribe as Saul. And as such, he was unwilling to bend a knee to Mordecai. We also know that his great-grandfather is Kish and that he was among the Israelites who were carried into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. Esther, when we get to her, her name is Hadassah in Hebrew, and it means myrtle. We see myrtle always used as that way that God renews and reminds his people of the covenant that he has made. We read about it in Isaiah 55, where it says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar will come the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that his people will not be cut off. The Hebrew Hadassah was likely changed to Esther when she entered the court in Persian society. In the same way, Daniel and his friends' names were changed, right? And so Esther means star. Into a Hebrew audience, that name would have been loaded with meaning. God promises Abraham in Genesis 15:5 that his offspring would be like the stars in the heavens. And Daniel reports that those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like stars forever. Esther's great-grandfather is Jesse, and he hails from the tribe of Judah. Jesse had seven sons. His firstborn son was Eliah, and it is Eliah who is Esther's grandfather. His lastborn son was King David, who was Esther's great uncle and the ancestor of Jesus. So in perhaps the most famous star reference that we know in the scripture, when the Magi came to Herod Herod to look for the newborn Christ, they tell Herod, we have seen the star In the East. And scholars think that it is likely that they simply referred to the book of Esther and the other scriptures that were left behind by the Israelites when they went back to Canaan. And they were, in effect, saying, We have read your story and we understand it. We've read your story, and we understand it. And so when we get to genealogy passages on our read through the Bible, and we think for crying out loud, why does this matter? Let me tell you, it's in there for a reason, and it matters very much indeed. We are known who we are. People know who we are by who our people are. Amen? So, in Esther four one to four we read when Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king 's gate, clothed in sackcloth, and in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Immediately out of the gate, the stage is set. We see mourning, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. One translation also tells us that Esther writhed in great anguish. She was in the palace, so originally she did not know what was going on. But we know that sackcloth and ashes are rituals of lament. And that custom points to the fragility of human life, knowing that we have come from dust and we will return to dust. Last week, Brad said, lament is the right response to injustice. Because it allows us to honestly express our sorrow to God while trusting in the goodness of God. Expressing our sorrow to God while trusting in the goodness of God. And he shared two reasons why this is important. Number one, he said it centers our response on God. Do you remember? He said if you don't center your response on God, you will run the risk of doing things out of your flesh. You will run the risk of being motivated by an unrighteous anger rather than a righteous anger. And every time that happens, the agenda of God will get hijacked and it'll go off course. The second reason he said that it's important for us to lament while trusting in the goodness of God is that doing so helps us to cultivate a God-formed response fundamentally lament is the act of going to God with all of our sorrow with all of our sadness sometimes with our sickness and even our sin and saying we have nothing we are bankrupt and the balance is coming due and we need you to step in as we drop into verses 5 to 11 we see Mordecai beginning to develop that God formed response in verse five, it says, then Esther called for one of the king's eunuchs and he ordered him to go to Mordecai. He went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and he told. And Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king. And he went back to Esther, and he told her all that Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know this, that if any man or woman goes to the king outside of the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter. And I have not been called to come in these thirty days." And here we begin to get a sense of the idea of what it would mean for Esther to go before the king. We know that the law has been figuratively and literally woven into the story. In in chapter 1, verse 8, they drank according to the law. In verse 13, after Queen Vashti refused to dance, the king sat down with wise men to discuss the law. In verse 15 of chapter 1, the wise men and the nobles then created a law that then would lead to an edict being issued to all married women. But there is a divine moment at play, and the law will play into it. And that leads us to the climax of our passage today in verses 12 to 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai said to them, Reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your household will perish. And who knows that you have not come to the king for such a time as this? And Esther replied, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and do not eat and do not drink for three nights, and my maidens will fast as you do, and then I will go before the king, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai's words to Esther were sharp, and they were very much to the point. He clearly said, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. There's something powerful and profound here about Mordecai's deep belief that deliverance would come. He knew the particulars of what it meant to be one of God's covenant people. But the question before Esther was whether or not she would get to be a part of it. And it is the same question before all of us. Will we get to play a part in the divine work that God is doing in our generation and in our time When I prepare for a message, I just read the text over and over and over again. And as I did, I was struck by Mordecai's confidence in verse 14, where he says, relief and deliverance will rise. And he says, but it would rise from another place. That Hebrew word for place is the word makom, And it has a double meaning. First and foremost, it just means what it states, a place. It's the word that is used in Genesis 22 when we read, On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance, the place where he would sacrifice his son Isaac, Mount Moriah. In Genesis 28, When Jacob had deceived Esau and he was running for his life, it says in the scriptures that he fled in the direction of Mount Moriah. We read in Genesis 28 verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set and he took one of the stones and he put it under his head and he laid down to sleep. And as he slept, he had a dream where he saw a ladder reaching down to the heavens. The scripture said he saw angels ascending and descending, and there above it stood the Lord, and he said, I, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham and Isaac. I will give your descendants the very place where you are lying. And in verse 16, we read, then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So while that first meaning of makom denotes a place, the second meaning is even better. Because when Jewish scholars wanted to indicate God being omnipresent, they would use the rabbinic name for God, ha-makom, which means capital T, the, capital P, place, which indicated anywhere everywhere, and wherever the Holy One dwells. Do you get that? Ha-Makom, the place, capital T, capital P. And what that means is this, that when Jacob's grandfather Abraham came to the Hakom place of Mount Moriah, he would encounter the omnipresent Ha-Makom. And when Jacob came to a certain place, Makom, he too would encounter ha-makom, the presence of God. Come on. So when Mordecai tells Esther, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place, he is hinting in that moment at ha-makom. And so while God's name may not formally appear, you can be sure that he is quite present. What does that mean to you today? That if there are times when the Father is silent... You can know that he is present. He is ha-makom. And Mordecai finishes by telling Esther, hey, if you're silent, you can be insured. You can be assured that God will use someone else, but that you and your family will perish. And then comes the first of two powerful declarations in the book of Esther. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time As this, and that one statement is all Esther needed to spring into action. She commands Mordecai to gather all of the Jews in Susa and to fast for three days and nights. Why the response of fasting? Because self-sufficiency sometimes is not the option. And I would dare say that most of the time, self-sufficiency is not the option. There are times we have to reach beyond the physical into the divine and bring forth the treasures that are there. We see a similar response from the prophet Ezra. It says, At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell on my knees, and I spread out my hands to the God of heaven. The prophet Nehemiah felt similarly. As soon as I heard these words, he writes, I sat down and wept and mourned, and I continued fasting and praying to the God of heaven. When your life gets desperate, try that on. When we talk about practices that is chief among them, there's a way that getting into the presence of God gives us the opportunity to behold the face of God, and it is in front of God that we are transformed, that all bets are off. And we know our God and we begin to know ourselves as his people, which leads us to the second most powerful declaration in the book of Esther, and if I perish, I perish. While Esther was completely set on getting into the presence of God, she knew that fasting is not a way to manipulate the hand of God. And that she could very well face death. It was the same for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if not, mm, when you put a king on notice, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Did you get that? Our God is able, always able, to deliver us. But if not, our path is still set before us. If I perish, I perish. When we slide into chapter 5, it starts by saying, and so on the third day, after Esther had counted the cost, on the third day she put on her royal robes, And she stood in the inner court of the king's palace where he sat on his royal throne. And when the king saw her, she won favor and held out to her the golden scepter, saying, What is it, Esther? What is your request, even up to half my kingdom? She put on her royal robes on the third day. And because all of scripture confirms all of scripture, it's at this place that your spidey senses should begin tingling. But hold on, it's coming in a moment. We're told that after her time of fasting, she puts on robes and she stands in the inner court of the king's palace. And here's something I need you to know this morning, people of God. When we are called to do the work of God, we can move with the anointing and the authority of God. For what else does a robe mean but that you have been anointed And called to the task that is before you. And while it says that she won the king's favor, I would say that's not exactly what she cared about because I would imagine that she had been spending three days fasting and praying. And Spurgeon says when the heart is enlarged with communion with God, it will be emboldened in doing for God. So she put on her robes, which were a sign of who she was, and she took her stand. So much of the time, I calculate, if I do X, will Y happen? Are you kidding me? For crying out loud, the way Esther walked will show us that God will have his way. But the question comes again, will you? And will I choose to become full participants in what he's writing? As she stands, even though she knew that she, would, that she would hopefully receive favor from the king, I believe she walked there armed with the knowledge of God's favor over her. And in the end, that is all that matters. Psalm 90 said, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. O oh God, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 5, surely, God, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Psalm 106 says, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid and save me. But the king extended the scepter and asked, what is troubling you? And in that one moment, we begin to see the divine reversal. And next week, you'll see the divine reversal over position, over power, over money, over law, over emotion. And you will know that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by few or by many. But today, I want you to know a few things that you can take with you. What does a story written in 479 B.C. mean for us in 2023 A.D.? I think in the same way that we look at the life of Esther, there are three things. The first is this, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Here's what we know. No matter what is churning up on the horizon, no matter the waves that are threatening to capsize the people of God, the sovereign one knows what is happening and he already has his people in place. Might you be one of them? Spurgeon writes, every child of God is where God has placed him for some purpose. And the practical use of this first point is to lead you to inquire for what purpose God has placed you where you are now. You have been wishing for another position where you could do something for Jesus. Do not wish anything of the kind. Serve him where you are. If you are sitting at the king's gate, there is something for you to do there. And if you were on the queen's throne, you better believe there would be something for you to do there. Do not ask, he writes, to be either gatekeeper or queen, but whichever you are, serve God there Lean in with me for a moment, people of God. You have been positioned by God at this place in the kingdom calendar for such a time as this. For we serve a God who has a kingdom that is both here right now and will come. There is not one person in this room who does not have a divine calling on their life who does not figure in prominently to what our God is doing. So whether you are a gatekeeper or a queen, figure out your place and take it. The second thing comes from, if I perish, I perish. Esther's crisis encompassed her calling, and yours will too. But let me remind you what we know from Colossians For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Put plainly, dead men cannot die. Our lives are not our own. We've died and they're hidden with the master. And so you cannot die. Is there a risk of faith, though, that you are being called to? If not, there will be one day. And the way that you begin to train right now will determine how you will respond tomorrow. In 1967, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a sermon at Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago. In it, Dr. King recalls his if I perish moment. He recalled how during the Montgomery bus boycott, he came home really, really late one evening and he crawled into bed. He said his wife and his kids were already asleep. But around midnight, the phone began to ring, and a voice on the other end of the line said, We are tired of you and your mess now, and if you are not out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your home. During his sermon, he revealed that while he'd heard threats before, he was particularly tired on this night. He was at a low point where he just could not take it. So he got up, as you would, right? Right? He was restless and weary and he walked into his kitchen and he began warming up a cup of coffee, trying to decide whether or not he would continue in his pursuit of justice or give the work over to someone else. And in his sermon, he says this, I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I will never forget that. I prayed a prayer and I prayed it out loud that night and I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. And he said, it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And he continued his sermon by saying, and I'll tell you, I have seen the lightning flash, and I have seen the thunder roll. I have seen the sin-breaking dashing, trying to conquer my soul, but I have heard the voice of Jesus saying, fight on, and he will never leave me alone. So know this, when you come to your if I perish moment, and you will, no weapon formed against you will prosper. We sang it this morning, but you must know it in your soul. Which brings me to your third thing. If you find yourself in the clutches of a crisis, I want you to know this. A third day is coming. A third day is coming. In his book about Esther, Major Ian Thomas writes, Willingness to die is the price you must pay if you want to be raised from the dead. To live and work and walk in the power of the third day. You know who had a third day? Abraham had a third day. Genesis recounts in the story we just heard that God tested Abraham, telling him to go to Moriah and sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering. So he rises early in the morning. He got up and he loaded up his son and he goes to Moriah. And on the third day, he looked up and he saw the place he was heading in the distance. And it was the morning of the third day when Abraham's knife was raised above his son Isaac, that God provided the divine exchange. A third day is coming. Joshua and the Israelites had a third day when they moved out into the promised land and into Israelite, and in, I'm sorry, into enemy territory. We're told that early in the morning, Joshua and all of the Israelites went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. And after three days, the officers came throughout the camp, stirring up the people, telling them what to do. They said, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are carrying it, you too, move out from your positions and follow it because you have never been this way before. And so it was on the morning of that third day that the priests carrying the ark stepped into the River Jordan and the waters piled up as a heap and the people crossed on dry ground to the land that had been promised but had never been claimed. A third day came for them. Jonah had a third day when he spent some time in the belly of a well when the Lord told him, go to Nineveh and preach against his wickedness. But he ran, he ran from the Lord and he boarded a ship. And you might be tempted to run from the Lord and board a ship that is bound elsewhere. But it says that the Lord sent a great and a violent wind that threatened to break the ship up. And after being thrown overboard, we all know how it ended for him. He was swallowed by a fish and was in his belly for three days and nights. But when he was spat up, on the third day, he obeyed and he warned the people and God relented and saved them from destruction. A third day is coming. And Jesus, he had a third day. In Luke 24, it says, On the third, first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and they headed toward the tomb. They found the stone had been rolled away. While they were wondering about not finding the body of Jesus, two men stood before them. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And on that third morning, all truth was vindicated. And Jesus was discovered to be the Son of God, the head of the church, the body, the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, and preeminent over everything Hear me, friends. If God prepares you to to seize a divine moment, and he will, it might not look like Esther's, but it will be a divine moment nonetheless. If you, like Esther, come to an if-I-perish moment, when you do, you can know that a third day is coming. And because God is sovereign, you can put on your royal robes, and you can remember who and whose you are. We are co-heirs with the Lamb of God and the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who sits on a throne with absolute authority and power over all creation, so that it was declared even the wind and the waves obey him. And when that happens, like the prophet Isaiah, you will say, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul exalts my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation in the same way he did the people of Israel. He covered them in his robe of righteousness. Amen? Amen. 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 Will you pray with me? Abba, we love you. There's no one like you. Your word that, that spans all time has details that are so tiny that matter to us and matter to our lives in this time. We want to say that we love you. We want to say that there is no one like you. We want to say that you reveal yourself to your people. And as you do, you call us continually higher up and further in to the things of the kingdom. God, we, we thank you for the story of Esther. How hard it is as your people to often live on the knife's edge. But on this day, we declare that we're not looking to the law to save us. We're not looking for a king's favor when we have the favor of our God. You've always intended for us to be a peculiar kind of people, it was always your intent. You never imagined it any way different. A people whose hearts were turned toward yours, whose faces were lifted toward yours. And God, we want to declare that we believe our lives exist at this time in the kingdom calendar for such a time as this. We want to confess that that there will be days where we feel like we're perishing but we will declare your name and your goodness, the fact that you are faithful and true to be sovereign over our experience. And God, we will keep our eyes fixed on the horizon knowing that on the third day, you always come through for your people. There's nobody like our God. And we ask that you would stir our hearts up to the wonder of who you are. So often we... We forget and we grow tired and weary. Teach us what it looks like to rest. Teach us what it looks like to rest. We love you, Father. We love you. And we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.